0: Today's morning show is coming about because of my colleague and friend, Len Ayaquinta, who, of course, is one of the very able hosts of our weekend program, Community Matters. And uh, Len Ayaquinta recently reached out to me with a suggestion that I am very excited about. Uh, he was inviting onto Community Matters someone who was a classmate of his in graduate school, a man by the name of Barry Jagoda who was a special TV advisor to then-Governor Jimmy Carter and then became a special assistant to President Jimmy Carter. And this came after uh, years of distinguished work for both CBS News and NBC News. And uh, his wide-reaching career, which continues to to this very day, uh, is chronicled in fascinating fashion in a new memoir called Journeys with Jimmy Carter and Other Adventures in Media, published by Kohler Books. And uh, I appreciate the far-reaching scope of this fascinating book, uh, which really takes us inside the uh, intriguing life and career of its author. Barry Jagoda, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I appreciate your mentioning the title of uh, my memoir, uh, although uh, the title was suggested by my publisher. He thought that that might uh, attract a, 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 a wide audience. Uh, this book is really more of a lifetime presentation of, of mine. It's a memoir with uh, sections, of, of course, including the Carter presidency, but also with roots and rising in Texas and New York City and uh, working as a producer for Walter Cronkite's Apollo 11 coverage and subsequent uh, Emmy Award-winning work
0: on uh, Watergate. Right. So this, this uh, reaches well beyond the, the work that you did uh, for, for Jimmy Carter. And that's one of the things that I, I really do appreciate about this book is, is, is certainly its scope. One thing that is said at one point along the way is that uh, you have written this book after 60 years in the media business, both reporting and making news. I wonder if you could take us inside those intriguing words that your career has included both reporting and making news and how valuable it is for somebody to have experience on both sides of that equation.
1: Well, uh, thank you for that that opening. You know, I have uh, observed uh, over the years, people often say, well, uh, this is a discussion in my book. And I often thought that that was just a kind of marketing ploy. But really, if someone somehow is able to write something down in the form of a book, sometimes the uh, material in, uh, as written uh, does get uh, inscribed uh, or uh, etched in one's brain. And uh, so it's not necessarily bragging about a book, but just uh, reflecting on what is one has written. Um, actually... Uh, Uh, I have only in uh, the recent years had a chance to uh, sit back and uh, think about um, my work, my career in uh, uh, journalism and uh, politics. And uh, because I had some uh, time after a long career, uh, I was able to uh, take a year and uh, set all this down in this book, uh, Journeys with Jimmy Carter and Other Adventures in Media. Um, so, you know, I'm not precisely sure where to start, but uh, I guess uh, what might catch one's attention is the work in the Carter presidency. Uh, and that came about because uh, uh, when Governor Carter was uh, seeking the presidency in the uh, uh, in the 1970s, uh, he and his principal media advisor, uh, Jody Powell, who became press secretary to the president, Realized they didn't really know that much about television. And uh, I came along. Actually, it wasn't really coming along. Uh, The distinguished uh, broadcast journalist, uh, uh, Ed Bradley, who made his fame on 60 Minutes, was covering the Carter campaign. And uh, I think uh, Powell said to to Bradley one day, you know, we really don't know that much about TV. Any ideas on who might help us? So uh, I could take the story from there. but as I say, it's written down in the memoir.
0: Right. Uh, I want to ask you real quick. I thought that was really kind of intriguing that Jody Powell, press secretary to Governor Jimmy Carter, the future President Carter, uh, said so freely, we, we don't know much about TV. That just seems like a, an interesting admission for somebody who's a press secretary. I mean, isn't that part of what... A press secretary does? Or was this back in an era in which television didn't necessarily figure as prominently? Or is it a time when television was emerging as being especially significant? And so they're trying to kind of catch up. I was just surprised that somebody who was somebody's press secretary would, in a sense, n- not know more about the television business. Well, you
1: know, it's a, a, a great observation you make. Uh Carter... Uh, came out of nowhere. He was known as Jimmy Who, as you'll recall. He had been governor of uh, Georgia, and uh, in that role as uh, governor of Georgia, of course, the uh, local media in in Georgia, particularly in Atlanta, uh, was around. And uh, but that was basically most of the about all the exposure that uh, uh, Carter and uh, Powell had to television, and uh, so uh, it was a. Uh, an opportunity for uh, both me and for uh, uh, Carter to uh, get in more in-depth in television. And uh, actually, uh, one day, uh, I, after Bradley mentioned to Powell that he might get some help uh, from me, uh, they, uh, Carter uh, was up in uh, one, just one New Hampshire in 1976, and he was up in uh, uh, had just won Iowa in 1976, and he was up in New Hampshire. And uh, a pal asked, invited me to come up there, and I did. And uh, we had a drink at a bar and chatted for an hour or so. And then a the, uh, uh, pal said, well, maybe you should talk to the boss. So uh, uh, Governor Carter did find a little time for me, and we chatted. And the first question uh, he asked me, he said, well, how would – how would you change me? And uh, I sort of had thought about this because some people had said that uh, Carter mumbled and was not as articulate as he could be. And I said, well, Governor, I wouldn't uh, try to change you. I would just uh, let you know what the impact of what you might say or do would have uh, on, uh, on the news, on broadcast journalism particularly, but on all the major uh, publications. And uh, that really appealed to the uh, guy's ego. He said, "Uh huh, okay." And he called Powell over and said, "Well, maybe this guy could help us if he wants to." So that's how I got involved. <laughs> right. In the, uh, so that uh,
0: you uh, had, you had a good answer or an impressive answer, and I'm, I I got to say I'm I'm impressed with, uh, then Governor Carter's question to you. I mean, what an intelligent question for him to ask, and uh, and it's a question you you fielded well. You write as you're describing this moment in your life and this career that philosophically, it was hard for you to think about making this shift and becoming in your words a booster for any politician i mean up until this point you had for the most part been a journalist where uh, you know it was it was not not part of the job description to be out there trying to boost one candidate or one official over, over another uh tell us more about what you had to sort of come to grips with in terms of getting comfortable with the idea of, in a sense, leaving behind your life as a journalist and making this step into a a very different sort of public arena?
1: Well, it's a a good question. Of course, you know, uh, uh, people who are trained in journalism uh, often uh, are are skeptics and uh, cast a cold eye, on, particularly on politicians, people who are making promises and such. Uh, but I had had 10 good years in, uh, in broadcasting uh, after uh, Lynn Iaquinta and I had uh, gotten our master's degree at Columbia University, and I went on to uh, NBC News and CBS News. It was a, a very fertile time. Uh, I eventually became a producer for Walter Cronkite's Apollo 11 coverage and then uh, got an Emmy Award for work on Watergate. Uh, so after 10 good years, I was kind of uh, thinking, well, is this going to continue? There must be more. And uh, it was at that time that I was sort of thinking about uh, some entrepreneurial activity and uh, mulling over what might come after journalism. And uh, that's uh, when uh, Bradley uh, uh, suggested to Powell that he might invite me up there. It was really a gamble on my part. You know, this guy was really unknown. And... uh, Uh, I was leading uh, a great career in in broadcast journalism. So uh, I I thought about it long and hard, and I said, well, uh, why not try this? Uh, You know, why not take this adventure? And it it turned out to be a a pretty good adventure, (laughs) because uh, what was really going on was uh, once a a candidate tends to win in a primary election, this uh, uh, in itself, is an invitation for media coverage. So uh, I came along about the time that uh, Carter was uh, became a star, uh, and I knew the background of uh, how to manage it, this uh, stardom, if you will, uh, because I had, uh, you know, in the previous uh, uh, eight years, had uh, covered uh, uh, aspiring politicians and, and knew what, what that amounted to. So uh, uh, actually a, a great moment for me in the... Uh, the uh, transition, uh, I joined up with Carter. And uh, uh, coming uh, after his win, first in Iowa and then in New Hampshire, I I remember so vividly the uh, outstanding uh, New York Times uh, reporter who was then uh, covering uh, 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 Carter, uh, uh, Jim Wooten. He was uh, James Wooten. Bradley was there. Wooten was there. uh, And uh, after Carter won, we were driving off to uh, uh, an interview that I had set up with Cronkite and the other anchors uh, uh, Wooten came along and knocked on the window and he rolled, and we rolled down the window and he he said uh, Governor I think you've just uh, won the nomination and uh, Carter uh, <laughs> had been working on this for a long time and he looked up and said uh, good deal Jim uh, thank you very much and we went on and it turned out that uh, Wooten was right on that as he Uh, Had been so often in in his uh, career as a uh, a great uh, print journalist.
0: Hmm. We're speaking with Barry Jagoda and talking about his book Journeys with Jimmy Carter and Other Adventures in Media. The book chronicles not only uh, Mr. Jagoda's long career in journalism with both CBS News and NBC News, but also his work as a, 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 a media advisor for Governor Jimmy Carter and then a special assistant in the White House to... President uh, Jimmy Carter. During that campaign in which uh, Jimmy Carter was challenging the incumbent president, Gerald Ford, uh, one of the most uh, significant duties that you had was to help uh, prepare Jimmy Carter for his televised debate with uh, Gerald Ford. And I think one of the most interesting moments in the book is when you talk about some of the behind the scenes logistics that were involved in uh, safeguarding your own candidate and that, uh, and that Mr. Carter could be in a sense presented in as positive a frame as possible even before the first word was spoken in that debate. Tell our listeners about some of those details that, uh, that you and, and other advisors to Governor Carter were, uh, were thinking about and taking care of.
1: Well, it's a good question. You know, uh, in 1976, uh, there was the, uh, probability of, uh, presidential debates. Such, uh, activity had not been undertaken since the, the great historical, uh, debate in 1960, several debates between, uh, the then incumbent, uh, uh, president, uh, between uh, then the vice president Nixon and the, and the Democratic challenger, uh, John Kennedy. So, uh, there had to be a reason for uh, any uh, both candidates uh, in a potential debate, presidential or in other uh, venues, uh, for having a debate in the first place. And in 76, uh, uh, the uh, president, the incumbent president, Gerald Ford, had only been in office less than a year, uh, having uh, succeeded uh, as a vice president to Nixon when Nixon uh, – left the office in the Watergate uh, uh, aftermath. And uh, 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 Carter, uh, as an unknown, also wanted to get uh, the airtime and uh, debate. So you had two candidates who wanted to debate uh, the uh, genial and uh, uh, rather pleasant uh, incumbent president, uh, Ford, and uh, the uh, uh, would-be challenger, Jimmy Carter. So... It was agreed that there would be debates, and there was actually set up uh, to make sure that candidates wouldn't try to dodge them something called the Commission on Presidential Debates. And uh, both uh, campaigns, the Ford campaign and the Carter uh, effort, were called to, to have uh, meetings to discuss how the candidates would uh, debate. Uh, our own uh, uh, real great concern was an, an opportunity. Was to have uh, the incumbent have have the challenger rather Carter uh, on an equal footing on a debate stage uh, with uh, Ford. There were some uh, really uh, what seems now rather uh, mundane or uh, issues. Uh, Ford was uh, I guess about uh, six foot to one, and uh, Carter was uh, only five foot eight. And we were very concerned to start with that we didn't want to have uh, one uh, Ford over, over uh, overshadow physically. Our candidate, and uh, that was just uh, uh, one issue. But uh, basically, we wanted to have a stage where uh, our candidate was uh, seen on an equal footing with uh, uh, the president. We didn't want to have podiums with the, the uh, signs that said uh, office of the president and that sort of thing. It would be a, a neutral stage, and uh, that's what uh, we worked on. There were uh, six. Uh, Advisors, three from the Ford side and uh, three from our side, who uh, met repeatedly, and uh, after uh, wrangling and uh, thinking about this and working it through, we did finally get agreement on uh, the staging of uh, the presidential debate, debates in 1976. It turned out to be very significant, because in these debates then and now, one of the things that the observers, uh, uh, the, political, uh, the political class, if you forgive the expression, that journalists and such pay attention to is that somebody makes a mistake, and if there's a gaffe of one sort or another, that tends to be uh, remembered. And uh, that's what happened in 1976. In the second debate, uh, President Ford uh, mentioned that uh, uh there was a no Soviet domination of uh, several of the countries in Eastern Europe. And uh, Carter heard that and said, well, you might try to tell the uh, Czech Americans or the uh, Polish Americans that, that there's a no Soviet domination. Actually, uh, I've been thinking about this and reading about this recently. The, uh, there was a, a, the emerging uh, uh, coming toward the end of the Cold War, and uh, Ford was not wrong. It just uh, was politically wrong. So uh, sometimes uh, what, in terms of policy, might make sense, uh, might have uh, run into problems with the politics, and that's what happened in the 1976 debates.
0: Mm. Well, of course, we all know by now that uh, that Jimmy Carter was victorious over incumbent Gerald Ford, and uh, and became president. And you were asked to stay on as a special uh, assistant in the White House to President Carter. Uh, very much still involved in uh, matters related to to the media and the way in which uh, President Carter was, uh, in a sense, connecting with the American public. Uh, was your position one that already existed? Or in a sense, was this uh, a, a position created for you? I guess another way to, to think about it is, w- would you have had predecessors in the White House Whose focus was the focus that you were given as special assistant to President Carter?
1: Well, you know, again, you've uh, you've touched on a, an interesting uh, question. Uh, the great the chronicler of presidential uh, elections, uh, Theodore H. White, he had written uh, in 1960 the book "Making of the President 1960" and went on uh, every four years to chronicle this. He, I'm almost embarrassed to say that he, uh, uh, White, said that. Uh, Uh, Javoto was uh, Jimmy Carter's uh, secret weapon in the 76 (laughs) campaign. And uh, as it turned out, uh, there had not really been that much focus on uh, television in previous uh, White Houses. And uh, so uh, I, there were, I guess the new president, President Carter named uh, 14 assistants and special assistants. And uh, I was one of them uh, to uh, come on to help with media relations and, other duties uh, such as uh, cultural and artistic activities, uh, working closely with the president's advance team. So it was uh, largely a uh, media relations job, but uh, uh, also any time television came up, uh, I got got involved in it. And uh, that was uh, very interesting, very rewarding. And uh, 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 so it was uh, relatively new. Actually, uh, very often, when there would be some event which was called a television event, I'd get called in and was a staff member. Uh, just a quick, brief uh, piece of history. You know, uh, Jimmy Carter was a went to was a midshipman at the United States Naval Academy, and when he graduated, he was in the middle of the, the class. Uh, he wanted to go into the submarine corps, and anybody who wanted to become a submariner had to be interviewed by the very rigorous-minded. Uh, 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 head of the submarine uh, program, Admiral Hyman Rickover. So uh, uh, in that interview that Carter had with Rickover, Rickover said to Carter, have you always done your best? And Carter, uh, being a relatively honest guy, said, well, no, I guess I haven't. And uh, Rickover said, why not your best? Which became the title of Carter's uh, campaign book, Why Not uh, Hmm. Your Best?, and, uh, so then after the election, when uh, Carter was president two months into the uh, administration, maybe six months or so, uh, the, uh, Carter invited Admiral Rickover to come to the white house and, uh, Rickover did. And then uh, they, uh, together, uh, using uh, a new piece of electronic technology, pushed a button and, uh, launched a submarine uh, from uh, the white house in, in, uh, in Connecticut. And, uh, that was uh, very interesting. Of course, Carter had a lot of things on his mind, and even though he was uh, proud to have his mentor, former mentor uh, Rick over there, uh, once the uh, the deed was done, uh, Carter went on to the, wherever he had to go. And Rick over standing there, looking around, said, "Where is Jimmy?" And uh, of course, Carter was gone. And uh, Rick over said, "Well, I've got these papers," uh, and he looked around. And he trusted a bunch of papers to me, said, and I said, "I'll be sure that the president gets these." Uh, Papers and I sent them on to the staff secretary, uh, Rick Hutchison by name. And, and like so many, uh, you know, lots and lots of material was given to the staff secretary for selection for the president to read overnight. And uh, that was a Rickover Over story that uh, I've always uh, treasured.
0: Mm one of the uh, things that we remember so vividly from uh the carter years i mean those of us old enough to uh have been a- around and uh, and 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 to directly recall those events uh is uh that first time that president carter was on television and uh wearing a sweater and uh and you would have had at least some hand in some of those choices that were made in terms of what that that uh television presentation uh to the American public was all about. Remind us what President Carter was anxious to achieve with that and 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 explain what you had to do with matters like President Carter wearing a sweater instead of a suit uh, and choices like that what 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 was behind some of those choices that were made in terms of the way President Carter would present himself? Uh, to the American well, people? Well,
1: Greg, again, it's a, it's a very good question. Uh, the, the new president wanted to, uh, had promised when he ran for president, to stay in close touch with the American people. And uh, so uh, thinking back to FDR's fireside chat, uh, that was the first major uh, event reaching out to the, uh, the public. And uh, what Carter had in mind was to... Uh, Talk about energy conservation, and uh, which was at that time, you know, of course, a a very important topic. And so, uh, we decided that a good way to do that was to have them sit in front of a a fireplace. And uh, uh, because, uh, you know, that would instead of uh, uh, wearing a suit and standing at a podium, uh, sitting in front of a fireplace would be a a good opportunity uh, to uh, uh, talk about energy conservation. When we were uh, a few days before the uh, talk, the fireside chat, uh, several of us were gathered around by the fireplace there, and uh, someone said, well, what are you going to wear, Mr. President? And uh, uh, his wife, uh, Rosamund Carter, who's very, very much directly involved in all of these activities, said, well, why don't you just wear that sweater that uh, uh, Chip uh, got uh, for Christmas, and Chip Carter, uh, the second of uh, Carter's three sons. And uh, so that was uh, the idea, and that's what happened. Carter put on a sweater, and he uh, sat by the fireplace, and uh, uh, that caused a lot of consternation uh, in the why wasn't the president properly dressed and such. Uh, but so that was the first big uh, 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 outreach. And then there was another uh, Carter had said to me, Listen, let's be sure we develop uh, programs to stay in touch with the American people. And uh, I called up my uh, old colleagues at CBS News, and said, what would you think about a radio program? So after the fireside chat, there was something called, uh, uh, what was it called, Conversations with the President, Walter Cronkite hosted Jimmy Carter, and uh, 42 million people called in with questions. And uh, actually, at the time, I guess well, it, was than, it was more than 42, it was about 50 million, and uh, 42 questions were taken out of that <laughs> uh, on a wide variety of topics, and it worked out very well because that was a, a good example of uh, uh, Carter relating directly uh, to the American people, and uh, that worked out uh, very well. So those uh, first two activities, the, the fireside chat and the radio call-in, uh, I actually have taken the full transcript of the radio call-in and added it as uh, an appendix to my book. Uh, this, uh, as this history has sort of forgotten the details of that call-in, but. Uh, that's one of the things that I'm very proud of in this memoir. Right. Uh,
0: I think uh, I'm so glad that that's there. And and it sort of reminds us of uh, how extraordinary that event was. As far as I know, there's never been one like it versus, for instance, the carefully orchestrated town hall meetings that have occurred since that, that are not at all the same sort of direct line to the president that, that, that this event was tru- truly extraordinary. Something else I want to ask you about in this portion of the book where you talk about President Carter is that it seems that one of the things that was most important to you was that President Carter re- remain faithful to himself. That is, that he should remain who he really was and and not pretend to be somebody that he wasn't and you go so far as to say that in your opinion one of the keys to his impact was his vulnerability his willingness to be vulnerable and uh, this eventually uh, became at at odds with other advisors uh, a little further into the Carter presidency who were feeling like uh, a more sort of polished and focused presence needed to be cultivated before the American public. Tell us more about this matter of vulnerability and why you think that was so important in terms of who Jimmy Carter was.
1: Well, you, you asked the question in, in, a, in an important way. You know, so often uh, candidates for public office and office holders think they have to get directly on message two or three uh, items that uh, they could repeat and uh, uh, the public uh, uh, based on polls and whatever, would uh, would want it here. I had always thought that one of the great strengths, maybe the greatest strength of uh, Jimmy Carter, was his uh, lightning mind. Uh, he was uh, very smart, and, uh, and he could take uh, questions on any topic and have a, a, a good uh, policy answer, which was also a, a good political answer. But uh, I ran into some philosophical differences with some of the other advisors who felt that uh carter should be uh, focused on just his messaging and uh but we were i thought we were very fortunate to have a guy who uh whose mind uh, worked so well actually you know uh, just recently uh, carter at age 95 was asked uh, about would you like to run for president again uh mr president and uh, carter said you know uh to be president you have to have a mind which is uh, facile and uh able to deal with a wide variety of topics, and he said, I think I'm a little too old for that. But back back when he was president, uh, I thought he was uh, terrific and in being able to uh, deal with almost any question that would come up in an intelligent uh, way, Uh, and I pushed that very hard. Hmm. As a matter of fact, I pushed it so hard that I ran into uh, some... conflict with some of the other advisors and that eventually led me to be to leave the White House after a pretty good tenure there.
0: Right. One of the people you ended up uh in a sense sort of rubbing against when it came to this matter was Jimmy Carter's own wife, the first Lady Rosalind Carter. Uh what is it like to be uh in that kind of disagreement with someone as important as the first lady
1: Well you know I should have uh, Spoken with uh, Roslyn about this before uh, it became a real conflict. You know, she was terrific. When I first got involved with the Carter people, I, I was invited. Uh, I was told to uh, come into the Carter home in uh, Plains and uh, see the, the candidate, and uh, I did. And uh, there, in the kitchen, uh, Mrs. Carter was just getting ready to go to a, a softball game. And uh, I was, she invited me to come along, and we had a terrific relationship. I, I thought she was very strong, very wise. Carter thought of her as uh, a, a good barometer of uh, the American people. But uh, she thought a couple of years into the administration that uh, Carter was being uh, overexposed, too vulnerable. And uh, I became, the, uh, I guess, the target of that overexposure. Uh, but... Uh, I would otherwise say she was terrific. You know, these uh, first ladies—we uh, we we've now had many first ladies since then, and they all have different attributes. But uh, Rosalind Carter uh, was uh, strong and uh, protective of her husband.
0: Hmm. Well, what what's kind of intriguing to think about is how how well does it work for somebody like Jimmy Carter to be president, and does it work for the president? to be somebody who has the kind of mind that Jimmy Carter did. You quote in your book a famous, famous line about Jimmy Carter in comparison to the man who ultimately unseated him and became his successor, Ronald Reagan. Jim Fallows said, Carter had 50 solutions to problems, but Reagan had only one slogan. And, of course, we all know who won that that election. Uh, I mean... Is it possible to be a successful president uh, when you are the former, where with 50 solutions to every problem versus something that is succinct and has staying power? Uh, I mean, uh, in retrospect, do you wish that Jimmy Carter had tried to adapt himself, or would that have just been impossible? Well,
1: I'm glad you asked the question. Uh, Jim Fowler is now one of the uh... Our country's leading journalists, uh, then was, a, as it turns out, was a speechwriter for Carter, and uh, he, he was a, a, a an eyewitness to all this. Uh, I think that uh, uh, each president, each uh, uh, office holder, has their own unique uh, characteristics, of course, and uh, uh, it was not merely that uh, Carter spoke out on many different topics as president. Uh, Toward the end of his,
0: uh, his tenure,
1: of course, uh, we can remember that uh, there were hostages taken in Iran, that there, there was uh, inflation was up to over 20 percent. And uh, this was a very tough uh, environment for uh, an incumbent president to defend, particularly when you had uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, who had run for president and who, uh, with his uh, movie star background and his amenable uh, smile, was looking for morning in America, and uh, Carter realized that uh, it was not so simple. So uh, uh, that led to his defeat. And uh, uh, after uh, Carter, after Carter's uh, service in the White House, uh, it was not clear what he was going to do, but uh, uh, he wisely created the Carter Center and focused on. Uh, uh, Eradicating disease and uh, uh, trying to uh, come up with uh, fair elections all around the world, and uh, so uh, uh, Carter is well known for it, uh, as much as for a post presidency as for his service uh, in the White House. Hmm.
0: Well, uh, ultimately, one of your uh, one of the badges of your success, or I should say, your significance in in the White House is the fact. That you ended up, in a sense, being featured in Jerry Trudeau's marvelous uh, comic strip, Doonesbury. I mean, a character in that comic strip as President Carter took office, uh, who was uh, known as the Secretary of Symbolism. And it was clearly a a character, a character clearly drawn uh, in parallel to you. Uh, and I, I appreciate that you even include uh, one example from n- a number of amusing Doonesbury comic strips that featured President Carter's secretary of, of symbolism. Um, in a sense, is, is that a fair, uh, a fair assessment of the, the Carter uh, it, the presidency, uh, that there was a tremendous concern about and preoccupation with symbolism? And is that something that is important? Or is symbolism something that can sometimes distract us from from matters that are even more important?
1: Well, you know uh, that that concept of symbolism can be uh, overrated, and in, in fact, uh, if there is not the policy uh, to go along with uh, uh, such uh, media inventions as uh, symbolism, you get in big trouble. Uh, but uh, I was uh, I was amused to see uh, that uh, Trudeau had uh, put that in a, a comic strip. And, uh, yes, it can be overrated, uh, th- those kinds of distractions, because, uh, after all, uh, the presidency is uh, such a, such an important, so important in our lives as uh, citizens in America and important around the world. And uh, so we've seen what can happen if uh, a president goes off on his own, uh, as we've seen in the, the recent uh, uh, past four years when you uh, had uh, uh, President Trump, who uh, basically didn't listen to anybody except himself, and uh, uh, he had uh, Trump has had pretty good instincts, or if not uh, merely symbolic. Uh, you know, in this recent election, 70 million people voted for Donald Trump, which was astonishing. The second largest number of people... Who vote, had have voted in a presidential election uh, only uh, in the, uh, 2020, topped by uh, the when it was at uh, 75 million uh, citizens who uh, voted for uh, Joe Biden. And of course, uh, that's interesting and important, but it's not nearly as important as uh, winning the electoral college. Hmm.
0: I, I'll give you a chance to say a little bit more about President Trump in a moment. I, I want to be sure that I have a chance to circle back and say that your book is about your entire career in the media, including the work you did in for CBS News and NBC News, uh, and including uh, the work that you did in helping to produce CBS's coverage uh, of Apollo, and the, specifically the landing on the moon in, in uh, with, with Apollo 11. Um, I just wonder... Uh, As you were helping shape CBS's coverage of something so momentous, I mean, one of the greatest stories in in human history, I mean, how does one not sort of shrink away paralyzed, I mean, so intimidated by the prospects of of covering something so momentous? I mean, what kinds of things were you weighing uh, in, in trying to decide how best to capture this extraordinary moment?
1: Well, you know, I was very, very fortunate. Uh, uh, I had a good background and training as a young guy, uh, and then uh, going to Columbia Graduate School of Journalism and uh, getting hired at NBC News. When I was uh, a young writer at NBC News, uh, the guy who, the top guy who was to eventually cover uh, the power program, uh, noticed that he needed somebody to uh, take the uh, rather difficult overnight. Uh, a trick, we called it, uh, to monitor the uh, early Apollo program. And, uh, I got, a, got that assignment, so I had learned something about the Apollo program, and then uh, the uh, guy who was in charge of the CBS News' coverage of uh, Man on the Moon uh, knew that I had had some background, and I was interviewed, and uh, got that uh, really, uh, got very fortunate, got lucky to uh, uh, be the uh, Producer, the hard news producer down in the Johnson Space Center in Houston, looking for what might go right, what might go wrong. Uh, Walter Cronkite was uh, very concerned about the details, being a uh, hard news uh, reporter behind it, the great broadcast uh, skills. And uh, so I'd been, in some ways, one had, I got lucky enough to be uh, in my late uh, 20s and early 30s, got some journalistic assignments which uh, some people, you know, uh, don't have that opportunity in their whole life. And so uh, I had, unlike so many people who were involved with Carter, uh, I'd already had 10 years of excitement. And at uh, age 32, I was one of the uh, older veterans in the the Carter White House. So I'd been there, uh, and uh, I was not as much in awe, I guess, of the White House, although I remember so well that, On the day of the Carter inauguration, I was standing on the White House lawn with uh, my colleague from the campaign, a wonderful guy by the name of Rex Graniman. We kind of looked around and said, is this true? Can we actually be doing this? So, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, I guess uh, having been uh, climbing halfway up the mountain as a broadcast journalist, getting all the way to the top uh, uh, was a... well, it was uh, exciting and wonderful, uh, I wasn't as, uh, as, I guess, overtaken by it as I might have been <laughs> had I not already had terrific experiences.
0: Right. You quote at one point CBS's legendary Fred Friendly uh, saying that uh, journalism or journalists are, in effect, a thousand-pound pencil. Do you remember him saying that, and can you explain what's behind those intriguing words?
1: Well, absolutely. Uh, uh, Fred Friendly had become an important producer in American culture with uh, uh, having uh, served as uh, the uh, producer uh, for uh, See It Now and uh, weren't uh, there as a, a top producer, and then was uh, selected as president of CBS News. And uh, he actually, uh, uh, Friendly, uh, used that term thousand pound pencil because of course at that time uh in the uh, the 50s and 60s if you were a journalist a broadcast journalist so you, you had to have a, a crew of three or four people and uh, before it, uh, you turned around uh, all that gear and all those people weighed more than a thousand pounds as opposed to a, a, a print reporter who needed a notepad and a, and a pencil or a pen so that's what the thousand pound pencil meant mm. and uh You mentioned uh, Friendly. Uh, He had a dispute with CBS News about covering uh, uh, hearings, uh, I guess, uh, uh, Watergate hearings. And uh, he left CBS News and came to Columbia Journalism School. And uh, Len Iaquinta and uh, uh, 70 or 80 other of us were in that first Friendly uh, class of broadcast journalists. That's kind of what propelled so many of us uh, into uh, broadcasting as opposed to print.
0: Hmm. So you do talk about uh, President Donald Trump in your book, and um, one of the things you refer to repeatedly is what at one point you call President Trump's dishonest use of media, and you call this a fundamental threat to our daily lives. What is at the heart of what you see as President Trump's dishonest use of media? Well,
1: you know... uh it's uh, easier to talk about this now That uh, Trump uh, has been uh, Defeated and we have a new uh, President but uh, uh, The Washington Post I think Cataloged over 20,000 lies Told by uh, Trump during his uh, Incumbency and uh, I mentioned uh, I guess I tallied up To 13 or 14,000 lives, lives uh in, in my book uh, The The uh, the problem is, if uh, an office holder just spouts off whatever they want to without any uh, foundation or any ties to reality or truth, uh, there a what begins to set in is a, a, a disbelief in anything, and and, and, and from these uh, office holders, and that I think is what we had finally in the Trump presidency. Uh, so uh, uh, I was a a partisan, uh, a a never-Trumpster, I guess, but the part of me which had been trained as a journalist could not leave behind uh, an effort to try to stay uh, quote-objective, unquote, Uh, and and that was very difficult in the case of Trump, uh, who, uh, when the the cardinal uh, idea of having a leader, a president, is someone who might tell the truth, and uh, so the truth was a uh, was a value that was uh, difficult to find in the recent uh, Trump presidency.
0: Well, we appreciate the perspective that you share on a, on a host of different issues and questions, and the way in which you tell so many intriguing and illuminating stories about yourself, your life, your career, and some of the extraordinary people which you have uh, been blessed to meet uh, along the way. And uh, the book, again, is titled Journeys with Jimmy Carter and Other Adventures in Media, a wide-ranging memoir uh, by Barry Jagoda, published by Kohler Books. Barry Jagoda, thank you so much for joining me today on The Morning Show. It was a pleasure and honor to speak with you. Best wishes.
1: My pleasure, my pleasure. And uh, thank you for uh, your background and such informative questions. your own perspective. I appreciate it very much, Greg.
0: You're very welcome.